Hello and welcome to The Sacred. This is a podcast about the things that are deep and meaningful and precious to us, our deepest values that we try and live by, and how we can get better at engaging across our deep differences in these extremely divided times. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. In every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform. I kick off by asking them to reflect on what their sacred or deepest values are, the things they've tried to live by, really. Being a bit nosy about their childhood and the ideas that were around as they were growing up. And then zooming out to the ideas they're interested in now and how they might help us build our empathy and our ability to have a healthier common life. I deliberately speak to people from a range of perspectives, backgrounds and beliefs. I have learned loads and been challenged in my thinking by almost every guest, and I hope you will be too. As always, please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at ESOldfield, and please do rate, review, and recommend the podcast to others if you find it at all helpful. There's one key way you can support the project. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Eli Pariser. Eli has had a long and distinguished career in tech entrepreneurship and is currently running the organization New Public, which is trying to help thinkers, designers and technologists build the digital public spaces of the future. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it will make more sense uh, once you've listened. He helped set up Move On and Avars, which were really pioneers in the digital organizing space in those early days of the internet. And if you recognize his name, despite not being at all connected with those kind of worlds, it's probably because in 2011, he coined the term filter bubble and wrote the New York Times best-selling book of the same name. We had a really interesting conversation about some of the trends that have led to our current situation in terms of division, many of which he predicted with terrifying accuracy, actually, back in 2011. We discussed his sacred value of curiosity, his abiding and actually quite inspiring love for democracy, and why we need to build shared public digital spaces in the same way that we now have public parks. There was a little bit of background noise in Eli's New York apartment, so you can hear a little bit of um, people moving around, a bit of sirens, uh, but I don't think it's too distracting. As usual with this series, there are some reflections for me at the end of the episode after I've had a chance to chew over the conversation. So stay tuned for that if you'd like to, but it's enough from me for now. I really hope you enjoy listening. Eli, we're going to go deep, quick, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. no chit chat. Uh, I'm going to ask what's sacred to you and you've had a bit of time to think about it. It doesn't really matter how this lands in the sense of you can challenge the premise of the question, you can take it in a different direction. But I hope it's just opened up slightly different space in your brain to think about what your values are, your deep principles, uh, the things you've tried to live by, even if, as all of us do, you have failed at times. Mm -hmm. What bubbled up in the small amount of time, I'm sure that you've had to think about it. The, The thing that actually came to my mind first was curiosity. And I only realized recently, like how much that idea of curiosity and the kind of like more religious or spiritual idea of witness kind of like can, can fit in together, you know, that, that really when you're acting in a fully curious way, part of what's so, um, 
uh, uplifting and transporting is, you know, just sort of like really getting to see the world as it is, uh, which is amazing, you know, and which is jaw dropping and so interesting. And so, uh, so I sort of feel like with, with people, with systems, with myself, like when I can like get into that fully, like I, I rarely feel like it leads me, um, astray. Can you say a bit more about that religious or spiritual concept of witness? I'm not like an expert in it. I just was, uh, you know, talking to someone who comes from a a traditional kind of, uh, religious background, but I'm part of like a group feelings discussion thing, sort of group therapy, but not even as, as like, uh, formal as that. And, um, and, and we were having this discussion about like, I was like, I feel kind of bad because, you know, I hear about what other people are going through and all of the like real challenges that they're facing in their lives and how they're feeling about it and the complexity of that and the difficulty of that. And like, I come out of these meetings often, you know, and I share my own, but I come out like feeling so like euphorically uplifted. I was like, am I just like some kind of like, you know, whatever, like, uh, you know, feeding on people's vampire. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and she was like, this is kind of like actually like a, a core piece of the human experience, which is like, you know, actually seeing other people fully and allowing yourself to be seen is this kind of just in and of itself and separate from, cause it's not like the, the euphoria comes from like, Oh, I guess like my problems aren't so bad because someone else's are worse. It isn't comparative in that way. It really is just this feeling of like, Oh, like here we are being humans in all of what that is. And that's quite something, you know, <laughs> and like yeah. somehow, you know, makes my skin tingle, you know, sort of that, that, concept which is really not about like problem solving or um categorization even but just as about like being uh, seen and understood and um that 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 got me yeah chaplains call it accompaniment hmm. and uh it's making me think of martin buber who i quote far too much but his whole thing is those moments where you really see each other those idol moments that's that's the only thing that's really real. Mm-hmm. Everything else is kind of like background noise. Like we're only f- fully a- alive and fully a human and fully ourselves in those moments yeah. of, oh, wow, you, like you in all your complexity. Um, mm-hmm. And then he really relates that to God. Can you think of an example where curiosity, that deep value has... Uh, affected your choices or your decisions in life? A fork in the road or a kind of dilemma where you've kind of chosen curiosity and it's changed what you might have done? I think it's present in most of my big decisions. It's a way of getting beyond like the initial schema or the initial reactions or the initial impressions that you have about what the decision even is. One of the books that made the most impact on me is this book called The Person in the Situation, which is really about the dance between like our our idea that like 
character is so important and who we are as this kind of like unchangeable thing. And the fact that actually like when you observe human behavior, people really show up really differently in different situations and predictably so. Part of the argument of the book is that like the, the situations we're in shape our behavior way more than we give them credit for. And, but, but part of what that's about is like even really understanding what situation it is. And, uh, and so I feel like that's where curiosity comes in because like, that's, that's such a critical tool to know, like, like, is this even the right decision? Am I understanding what the decisions are now? I'd love you to paint us a picture of your childhood. Tell us a little bit about where and how you grew up with particular reference to any big ideas that were around political, philosophical, religious, that you have a hunch might have been formative for good or ill. I grew up in a small town in Maine, uh, in northern United States, um, 900 people. And my parents were, um, you know, had moved there from uh, from the city and were kind of like back to the land people and had started an alternative high school that was really built around this idea of kind of uh, serving kids who were mostly like lower income kids and who had dropped out of high school and who um, generally like hadn't had um, hadn't had like good adult relationships in their lives. And so the idea with the school was let's start with that relational context and then let's kind of like build on that to do the actual like here's what math you need to know. But that if we if we don't have that kind of like infrastructure of trust and care, then there's like not that much that you can build on educationally. It was a nonprofit school. Um, my parents kind of paid themselves as little as they could kind of get away with to run our, our family. And, um, you know, and there was this real sense of kind of like this, uh, being of service and of use to a community of people is a really like important part of, of life. You know, somewhere early on, someone kind of shared with me, maybe it was my, my parents, um, yeah, this idea of kind of the birth lottery and that, uh, you know, one way to think about how, how just or unjust the world is, is to think about like, well, how much would I want to like randomly be born anywhere to anyone at any, you know, at any place or socioeconomic class. And I think that definitely like was a, was a big, um, idea for me, like as a kid of like, uh, I happen to have landed uh, in a place that is wonderful in so many ways. And like, uh, that's not totally fair. And I, part of what I want to do is like, try to spend some of my time trying to, trying to increase uh, the birth lottery odds for, for everyone. So that really helps me make sense of, uh, as I've kind of been reading about you and thinking about you, it's clear really that it's social purpose first, tech second, that you are someone who uses tech or seeks to use tech as a social tool to bring about this sense of, you're, you're an activist, essentially. Is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely always been part of my, um, yeah, big part of my my DNA um, and wanting to kind of like uh, help help push the world in a certain direction. 
you know, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. Um, I think like I've always been, you know, a, a nerd also. And so the idea that like we could use these tools to further that mission has always felt like an exciting kind of thing to explore for me. And you, um, set up or helped set up or co-founded various kind of social change organizations slash businesses quite early doors. What were the threads you were pulling on? Can you remember kind of what was the story that you were telling about what you were trying to do in those years? I fell into digital activism, not not by chance, but just kind of uh, one thing led to another. Um, and really that started after 9-11 when I was... Uh, working as a kind of IT person at a nonprofit and um, but feeling like, oh man, this is kind of a pivotal moment in the world and ended up putting up a little website that went, that went viral. And all of a sudden I was like in touch with um, half a million people around the world. And that was a, a crazy experience as a 20 year old. And, and uh, really what kind of got me, then I started having to like help people do things because people wanted to do things as a group. Um, and so that's really what got me like uh, into, into the space. So the, the storytelling, you know, came ex post facto in some ways, like, and there was just a lot of like doing and making it up as you go. Trying and, you know, messing things up and trying again. Um, there was a lot of kind of, how how I got into it, you know, I'll I'll, I'll die on the hill that democracy is a, a wonderful ideal to aspire to, and that things are better when everybody is engaged and everybody participates in them. And, um, you know, I think that was part of the story that I understood from what was possible with the internet. Not that it was necessarily inevitable, but that like we could realize some of these goals that, you know, have never really been fully realized of what a democracy could be. I have a little game with myself where I try and guess what my guess sacred value will be. And I, uh-huh. my guess for you was democracy. Oh that yeah. Uh-huh. would be a, a sense of it. What, tell us why. Th- there's some value behind democracy. That's probably actually the value that's like, um, collaboration sounds too like workplacey but it's like what happens you know if if we were talking earlier about the like you know that moment of contact between two people like well there are these emergent things that can happen when you actually get more than two people and everyone's like actually kind of adding something and in it for the right reasons that I just think are really not only profound but also like so beautifully powerful you know in a way that you just can't get to in other in other systems there's a piece of it that's about like really recognizing what each person brings to the party and then there's a piece of it that's about like you can't have a party without like a bunch of people there and without like a bunch of different kinds of people there it's not a party like i care both because i think it's the best way to do things uh for everyone and because i think it's like a uh more joyful more human way to do things 
It's a good, it's a good sales pitch. I like it. Um, what? So you'd set up or been involved in Move On and then Avaz, and 2010, I guess, maybe earlier. This idea for Filter Bubble, this kind of what's now seen as a very prophetic, incredibly kind of insightful prediction, really about a direction that we're moving in. Do you remember when you were like? okay, no, I've got to say this. Was there a sound of inciting incident? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really, uh, you know, back to curiosity, it's like I, I was really coming from a place of I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> and I don't really understand what it means that in particular that we're moving on the web from kind of a, a, a an era that was dominated by individual websites and by email to an era where everything's being pushed through these algorithmic filters in places like Facebook. And so really, you know, what the book was, was just like trying to figure that out. One of the fun things about writing a book is, you know, you can like call a lot of different people and ask them questions and they'll kind of like take some time with you because you're writing a book. Um, And so I think for me, there's also this constant process of kind of like, I'm asking myself, like, is this the right question? Is this a good question? And like, the more that I like talk to other people and ask them the question, they're like, oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. Uh, Either the more, the more confident I get that I'm kind of onto something. And so um, that was really more the process with the filter bubble where I was kind of like, should we be concerned about this, you know, uh, coming era of algorithmic personalization and um, what it might do to our democracy? And, you know, I was not getting a lot of like, um, a lot that was consoling at the time when I would ask smart people about it. And so that's really what led me into that. And it, you know, made this, very powerful argument, coined the Tenfield Bubble, made this very powerful argument about personalization and the ways in which we were increasingly being shown the world that we set out already wanting to see. So a kind of reinforcing of tribes, a building of confirmation bias, where we were getting more ignorant and less and more confident in our views. And the the thing that really people have quoted this at you millions of times, but the thing that really stuck out is that um, thing about if you search for, I think Shell, one of the big energy companies, yeah, um, you get either results about their kind of negative impact in the world or <laughs> how to invest in them, depending on your search history, which felt terrifying. Yeah, we are a full decade on. What has what has changed? Well, I mean, uh, we are are living some of the worries that um, the book tried to outline, I think, in terms of a a fragmented um, political conversation and, um, you know, increasingly divergent kind of understandings of the world, of the the big situation uh, that we're in. And, um, you know, I think also especially among younger people, there's much more fluency with this stuff. So there's less of a, you know, I think when I wrote the book, you know, and this is probably the, the good piece is like, it, it was just all really new to a lot of people that you, that you could even do that, you know, that, that Yahoo wouldn't be just showing the same 
front page to every person who visited it. And, um, you know, now, uh, now I think people are starting to kind of realize like, oh, okay, there are dynamics at work here. We kind of starting to understand what these dynamics mean. And we're starting to understand, you know, how they can really be corrosive if, uh, they're not, um, held in check. Um, and so, I think the the conversation has advanced a lot and it's become a much bigger, more public conversation than it was like in 2011. Um, but I, but I think, you know, part of what we're trying to do with this project that I'm working on now, new public is kind of push it past, past like, uh, a binary model of, um, you know, there's, there's, um, algorithmic personalization or no personalization or there's Facebook or no Facebook and toward kind of like, well, what do we actually want for our digital environments that represents the values that we care about and how do we build that? I want to come back in a minute to that because I think the fascinating thing about you're both a theoretician and a practitioner, which is unusual, I think, to be able to say, right, this is the problems that I see and then go and build it. So I think part of the answer to my question is that, that you take agency. But I wanted to ask about kind of deep emotional thing of how do you deal with, how do you not lose hope given that 10 years ago you said, These, this looks bad, guys, and lots of the things that you predicted have come about and we don't seem to be necessarily sure where the break is now. How do you, what's your kind of emotional journey slash spiritual journey? I don't know. Like how are there practices? Are there boundaries? Are there habits that you keep yourself able to work in this world and not frankly just disappear off to the woods and shout for us to unplug the internet entirely? Yeah. I mean, there's a part of it that's just like, that's part of my disposition. And so I don't want to take too much credit for being like a... Very zen. Very Yeah. No, I, I just like, I'm interminably hopeful. I think it was Gramsci who has this, has this bit about, um, uh, op- uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And that's sort of like, uh, uh, my general approach, which is like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like be critical and I'm going to think hard and I'm going to be really clear eyed about all the challenges. And I'm going to have some faith that like, we're going to get there somehow. And I don't totally know exactly, you know, how to connect those dots, but, um, but uh, I do have that faith. And I think part of it is this is a dicey and stre- and, and awful moment um, in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, in human history, we've had lots and lots of these moments and um, not that they don't carry real costs and uh, real tragedy, but um I'm not ready to kind of give up on the whole enterprise at the moment. I sort of feel like we need to redouble our imaginative efforts. And, and to the extent that we don't think we're going to solve some of these technological problems at the level that we're, that they're presenting themselves, like we need to like up our game and think about what the next level is. Yeah. Um, one of the key things that I can see that's changed in the last 10 years is just the level of saturation. You know, we were receiving personalized content content in 2011, but we might have logged on to our emails, checked our emails, gone away, done something else, you know, spent an hour browsing the internet maybe, and then gone, done something else. But this is now a very much 
the, our site of character formation, like the, 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 the things that are shaping us are primarily the digital information streams that we receive. How do you think they are shaping us right now in terms of how we engage across our differences particularly? Yeah, I think the timepiece is really important. Everything ultimately just comes down to like, how are people spending time? Because when people are spending time in one way, they're not spending it in a bunch of other ways. And, um, you know, as a parent of young kids, and I know you have uh, kids too, like you feel this very like acutely in terms of like, just what displaces what and what, uh, and those calls are really important calls. And so, you know, when we're spending a lot of time with digital media, just like when we're spending a lot of time consuming movies or TV or anything else, like that displaces a whole bunch of social activity that um, used to happen in different ways. You know, it's like uh, uh, we used to go out to um, do clubs, do groups, do associational activities, like probably because it was entertaining, Reward. you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. there was nothing, it was boring and there, that was there to do. And, you know, now, now it's possible to kind of never be, never be bored or never be at a lack for, um, stimulation anyway. So I think that's one piece of it. And then I think there's like, how are these media, what are they incentivized to do? And so how are they structuring, uh, these relationships. And, you know, just yesterday there was a piece that came out in the was in the Washington post about how, you know, Facebook, uh, weighted angry reactions to content much more heavily in its decisions about what to show people than just if I liked it, or even if I said I loved it or sending people a hug or whatever. Wow. They've been telling us that that's just us. That yeah, we right. are more likely to click on something for a negative emotion, and they're just. But no, it's the choice architecture. Five times more, uh, more visible. So, so what does it mean that everybody's really angry, and at the same time, our communications media are, you know, biased toward ang- angering content? Uh, like that. That's you know, definitely some gasoline on the on the fire culturally. And I think that's, that's what we're experiencing. So I think that makes it really hard to have relationships across difference because, um, you know, there's just at a kind of core, like physiological, psychological level, being, feeling threatened isn't a good space, uh, to develop those relationships when you feel threatened it's really hard to be curious. It's really hard to be patient or interested or, you know. Empathetic. Yeah, exactly. One of the themes that comes through quite a lot in your work is this idea of the power of an environment. And you've spoken about the sense of wanting to contribute to a better world, the sense of the the, the good that we want to move towards. But I feel a real skepticism in you about the power of individual choices in that versus the, the sense of, of structures. How much have you seen yourself as someone who's trying to build structures that make it easier for us to make good choices? Yeah, I think that's a core piece of what I think, you know, public design is. Um, and I think it's it's not to undermine or... Um, 
or degrade the need for individual agency and freedom and choices. But it is, you know, the freedom is just a weird thing because at either end of the spectrum, when you have too many choices or too few choices, you're not really free. Like it, it, it isn't existential freedom. I can, I could wake up, I could go outside and start miming or I could like go to Brazil or whatever, like that just quickly becomes paralysis or becomes ennui or it's overwhelming and we can't live that way. And so, you know, part of what I think good design does is presents a legible menu of what can be done and can be done together. And, um, you know, to put this in concrete terms, like think about a, a park that has a playground and has a dog park and has a field. It's not to say like you can come up with any number of crazy things you want to do in the field, but there's a little bit of scaffolding, you know, sort of like a coral reef. Like you have to have like some amount of uh, structure to build off in order to like have the magic happen. I think of physical space as so in opposition to digital space because it, it, it you know, it's sen- sensorily not, we can't, we can't grab it, right? Or touch it or feel ourselves walk through, or at least we can't if we're not fully in kind of VR mode. But yeah. you you really do feel like we can learn a lot from physical space and import it to digital space. What's your vision there? Yeah, well, I think it's partly, it's, it's partly about recognizing that, you know, through every society, through all of human history, we've seen this need for common spaces and for public spaces and because they do work, they do things that private businesses and markets like won't do. There are people whose needs won't be served in the market. And if you don't have spaces and institutions that do that so that if I can't afford a gym membership, I can still get outside and be, be healthy or get some exercise. Like, uh, then then you have real social problems and those social problems generally catch up with everyone. Yeah, so, so part of it is just recentering our conversation about digital life by saying like, well, we've seen the need for these public driven institutions in our physical life. Why wouldn't we need that in our digital life? Why, why do we think that it makes sense to try to do all of this inside of a bunch of private companies, which even if they're run with the best possible intent and the most wise leaders, you know, that's just a very particular structure for organizing behavior and activity that's ultimately about delivering shareholder value. That's fine. But in the past, we've seen that there's utility to other ways of organizing people. And so that's that's part of it. But then I think, you know, when we really get into it tangibly, we can start to say, well, we have this, you know, centuries or millennia of experience designing common spaces. And there are some themes that come up again and again. And there are also some problems that come up again and again. And why would we throw all of that out and act as if, you know, here we are uh, with a blank slate? So I live in a big city, also live in London, and we spent almost the entirety of lockdown in a park. And the, the powerful sense of, I think, other than the NHS, which people only access at moments of real crisis, public parks are the last place where everyone comes, particularly in a pandemic. But every single walk of life comes for a walk in the park if you if you live in a city. But I, I, I have an imaginative leap 
to what that means. So paint me a picture and tell me what you're trying to do with New Public. Is it a publicly owned social network? What might a space look like where everyone could come and and it's that witness thing, somehow mm-hmm. witness each other or accompany each other or even just acknowledge each other online given the ways we've been formed to have such short attention spans, to be these sort of sensory reaction machines to our worst selves, essentially. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I was talking to, um, to a woman who was, she was actually one of the first Yahoo employees and um, has since had this kind of amazing career across uh, tech. And she was saying, like, we, we make this mistake over and over again, which is to confuse, like, tech with, like, tech on capitalism. And there just uh, really is this difference when you start to explore spaces that aren't organized to maximize engagement or to maximize advertising uh, impressions. And so an example I'll give you is, um, from Porch Forum in Vermont, which is this, it's a social network or a fancy email group. You could also think of it as, but it's, it's an extremely heavily moderated local discussion forum. It, it only goes out once a day. Every post is read. And, you know, if you are not in, in violation of the norms, you get it sent back to you with a note that says like, hey, this isn't quite right. Like, do you mind like rephrasing or whatever. Uh, so it's this very high touch thing that as a business, you know, that all of that, that would be the first to enormous. go, right? Like, yeah. uh, but as a service, it's incredibly uh, well used in Vermont. It's actually like two thirds of Vermont households are on Front Forge Forum, you know, with a pretty good uh, spread across class. Um, Vermont's very white, so there's not a whole lot of racial diversity, but, but across class, which is a big divide in Vermont, you, you do get these, these rich conversations happening. So that's just a very little example of, it's not like digital conversation as a category has to be so intractably difficult, but when you start to put the parameters around it, we're like, we're not going to invest any labor in making it good. And it's all just kind of like, people fumbling around and fitting the pieces together. And by the way, we're going to amplify the most angering content. Then you get what we have right now. And that's the tech on capitalism. And so um, I think we are interested in how do we build spaces that have these public service values at the forefront. And maybe that means they're actually nonprofits, or maybe that means they're, you know, uh, low profit for profits that are organized around public benefit. But um, we just think there's a huge opportunity there for things that will really serve people in the way that parks and libraries have in the physical world. So how much is your experience at Upworthy um, driving this? Because I've been fascinated to see, to hear more about your experience of trying to build a for-profit business, right? Yeah. That amplifies content for social good. And you've talked about this tension that every, and I, I remember I went, I worked at the BBC for a while and I went into the BBC because I saw a film called Good Night and Good Luck, mm-hmm. which is about Ed Moreau yeah. and this, you know, very, we'd call them Rethian values in the UK, like BBC mm-hmm. values of the power of media platforms to educate, to inform, to, to, to form us morally and ethically. Yeah. Um, but you've said, you know, every single person in every media platform, you know, old or new comes to this thing between what sells and what is good. 
stuff that matters versus stuff that sells. Did you just reach the end of how far you can go with that whilst trying to make a profit? How much was that experiment successful? Yeah, I think we we definitely reached the end of how far you can go with it while trying to make a, a venture scale business. And, uh, you know, I think that was a big learning for me. It was like, oh, like media and storytelling is so important, but with some exceptions, a lot of the most important storytelling work is just not going to be at the core of uh, a venture-backed business because sometimes you have to invest a lot of time and energy in topics that are not especially um, profitable. You know, interesting or profitable or and and, and um, figuring out how to tell those stories that are the most important often can take more time than like churning out a bunch of trivial stuff that everybody gets already. I'm going to ask you one final question, which is in all of your deep dives into the intersection between uh, our information platforms and our divisions, what is the key thing that helps us reconnect across our differences? I guess maybe one thing that individuals can do and one thing's that more on a policy or a, um, leader level? Well, I I would say a key thing is just scale. Like you are never going to know or be able to understand billions of people or millions of people or even hundreds of thousands of people. But like you can make some real headway with dozens of people or like eight people, right? (laughs) And so I think like really thinking about how much time we're investing in like these fragmentary glimpses of people that we'll never know um, versus in relationships that actually can be bi-directional and relational to me is like a key question, both for individuals and for designers and structure makers. Like how do we, how do we get things down to human scale so that uh, because we're humans, like that's the scale we are built to, to get. And um, to me, that would be like the place to start. Yeah. And that works at both levels. How do we design yeah. it as leaders or governments or policymakers? And how do we live it? Exactly. As people. Yeah. Eli Paraset, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a pleasure. It's becoming clear to me that I find everyone interesting, (laughs) which is why this job is such a privilege. But Eli, in particular, was not at all what I expected. My prejudices coming into this interview were that tech people and sort of startup entrepreneurial people tend to be very alpha and self-assured and pitchy. You know, here's why I'm amazing and I have all the answers. Um, And Eli, who actually does have a TED Talk has been viewed more than 4 million times. Uh, But he wasn't like that at all. He did predict a huge amount of what's happening now and he has all this experience and foresight, but he was just really humble and thoughtful, um, which was massively refreshing. The more I ask people about their childhoods, the more that very obvious thing about the formative power of our childhoods become clear to me. And you can just draw a line between Eli's parents running a non-profit school focused on children who might otherwise be excluded from education and his sense of wanting to take what he was good at, which was uh, tech and computers and IT, and um, use those skills for good 
I really like his vision of digital public parks. And it, it is interesting when you think about it, that we are very happy for our digital public spaces to be entirely run by corporations. And I don't think he's anti-corporations um, in general, but just argues very well for this need for a mixed economy of public space and private space. Lots of um, social commentators have been arguing for a while that even in uh, in the physical, I don't think real life and online life are helpful divisions, maybe, but in the physical space, we are losing our public and common space, that lots of it's being sold off. And, you know, the Victorians, social reformers, uh, many of whom were inspired by their faith, actually, really had a strong sense of the importance of common spaces that everyone could access, that there were no barriers to. Hence, all these amazing parks all over London. I live near Ruskin Park um, in Camberwell, which is just a lifeline and one of the few places where everyone from the community goes and everyone from the community, at the very least, sees each other. So I'm intrigued by what that would mean in digital space, although, frankly, like most of us, I'm a bit burnt out by too much time on screen. So I'm more likely to spend time in my real-life public park, but I look forward to seeing uh, digital public parks emerging. I think the most memorable thing that he said to me was right at the end about the human scale, the hubris, actually, of trying to hold all this complexity and this number of people in our heads, in front of our attention, in our imagination, and engage with problems and people at this global level when we are um, only human after all. And uh, I'm going to think about that. What does it mean for me to commit to a smaller number of relationships over time in committed covenant relationships? Um, because that might be where we're able to be most fruitful. That's what I'm pondering after listening to that interview. I'd love to hear what you're pondering. Please do get in touch and see you next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.